This podcast is brought to you by Villanova University on iTunes U. Please visit us on itunes.villanova.edu. It occurred to me when I was when I was asked to do this is that I don't do critical pedagogy as such, but given the work that I have done, it has great you know critical pedagogical implications. So there I am, right? Uh, so I want to just bring with sort of to say that basically what I'm giving you are fragments, right? And partly fragments because I don't think there's sort of an algorithm for solving problems that come up in the classroom, right, in terms of race and particularly whiteness and so on, especially depending on where you happen to teach. And I, want, I imagine a place like this where I'm assuming that the student body is predominantly white, right, and faculty predominantly white. Okay, so I'm in the right place. Um, so so keep, keep in mind that philosophy is very, still very white, very male. I think I'll take about a half an hour. Uh, also keep in mind that philosophy has only recently given serious attention to the problem of race, uh, to say nothing of the problem of whiteness. Um, so I, in particular, face particular, particular philosophical, not philosophical, but pedagogical problems when, I, when I'm teaching stuff around race and, and whiteness, because at one level, black bodies in, in academia walk into classrooms, right, we're already, our bodies are already ontologically truncated, right, and epistemically truncated in a certain kind of way. Walk into spaces where someone goes, oh, wow, it's a black professor. Right? What does he know? Um, so there's this kind of assumption that they're incapable of teaching, especially philosophy. Something to be said about that. And so it's nice and yet strange, for example, when a black female said to me once in class, she said, you know, uh, and it was awkward because, you know, the, the white students were kind of just sitting there thinking, that, that's strange, when she said, you know, I'm proud to have someone who's black and who's a philosopher teaching this course. And it hit me as strange, right, because I'd never heard it before. Because, I don't know, could a white student say it? I imagine. But it would be really weird for a white student to say to a white professor that I'm proud to have a white professor teaching the course, right? It would border on racism. Um, so it was kind of strange. It was, it was an interesting, yet it, show, it said something about the paucity of black bodies in, in uh, positions of the professoriate, right? Um, so I'm going to put a few terms on the board, not a lot, but I'm just going to quickly go through them and during Q&A you guys can say more about them, ask me more questions about them. But it seems to me that if you're going to teach race and whatever you're teaching, in all of my courses, both grad and undergrad, uh, whether it's a grad course in phenomenology of race or critical whiteness studies or undergrad film and race or race matters, philosophical and literary perspectives, I sort of start off with some fundamental notion, right? That basically whiteness, and again I'm not going to spend too much time doing this, uh, whiteness is what I like to call the, during that talk tonight I'll mention it, it's the, the transcendental norm, right? And I'm not going to go into like a lot of details of this, right? But just know that for me, to say that whiteness is a transcendental norm is to say that basically whiteness defines that which is non-white as different, deviant, uh, as raced, as marked. Uh, Patricia Williams refers to it as the, ex, the, the great ex-nominated as raced, right? Um, you, you guys know that what this is, right? You've heard of this, I'm sure. What's BET? Yeah. Black Entertainment. Black Entertainment. It, it self-consciously names itself for very specific reasons, but often what we don't hear about is this. Right? Wet. White Entertainment Television. Which is important. Um, so the, the transcendental norm, and it's, the norm, it's something I have to say more about the transcendental, but I, if you guys want to ask me, if, how many people are philosophers here as such? Good Lord, okay. Well, if you guys want to ask me about being <laughs> transcendental, I'll say more about that if you like. Um, so it seems to me there's also the, the importance of talking about white privilege, right? 
So not only just whiteness is a transcendental norm, but also white uh, privilege, right? Um, and I'm thinking about privilege in terms of uh, it being a side of immunity, right? Immunity in virtue of being white, uh, which raises for me the question of, of, of complicity, right? Again, I'm throwing concept up, concepts up here, but we'll, we'll cover them. So questions of privilege, immunity, and, com and complicity. Um, good. So when teaching courses that explore race and whiteness, I think that for whites, uh, and this includes white teachers as well as white students, uh, they must nurture the following dispositions. I'm calling them, just occurred to me as I was coming out of the restroom that um, dispositions is the right term, right? I'm thinking about Aristotle, right, and hexes. I mean, when I wrote disposition, I wasn't thinking hexes, but I think that's right. So there's certain kinds of dispositions. And what's sort of the first one I'm thinking about? Well, if you're teaching these kinds of courses, I think that paresia is important. And since I'm with a lot of philosophers, what's paresia? Frank speech. Yeah, frank speech, right? I even like to say, uh, to speak it all. Right, to speak it all. Right, so courageous frank speech, right, to, to speak fearlessly, this kind of thing. I think that's important, right, uh, because it has the capacity, right, uh, to create some level of, and again, I'm throwing terms around, uh, uh, some, some sense of vulnerability, right, which etymologically I really like, which means to wound, right, so wounding needs to happen in classrooms. Um, there needs to be an awareness of one's whiteness as a side of privilege, as sort of part of this framework of whiteness as a transcendental norm. Um, there must be an awareness of one's whiteness um, as an embodied reality, and that such whiteness signifies meaning over and above what one intends, often. Uh, an awareness of one's positionality as white and how this mediates hidden epistemological assumptions and axiological assumptions, for example, that we whites value what we value and how this mediates uh, what should be known or what is relevant epistemologically. Uh, a willingness to render one's whiteness strange as a peculiar phenomenon. Um, if you guys are familiar with the work of Richard Dyer. Um, so to nominate it, to mark it, to mark it as a presence and not an absence. There uh, sort of needs to be a, a, cogn a, a, a cognizance of the ways in which your area of specialization, depending on what that happens to be, repositions whiteness as the, the hub, as the center. A cognizance that unteaching, unlearning, and disarticulated, if you will, modes of racism um, is not about, uh, it's not about arrival, but process. Uh, a, cognizance of how, a cognizance of how sympathy for the other and self-critique uh, can function to reinscribe whiteness. If you guys are familiar with Sarah Ahmed's work, just dropping a few names here. A willingness to incorporate literature that is about quote unquote people of color while engaging the dialectics of race vis-a-vis -vis whiteness. I'll give you an example of that. Um, and getting white students to identify quotidian moments, right, everyday moments in and outside of the classroom in terms of how uh, whiteness places genuine diversity, if you will, under erasure, right, in terms of the friends who they keep company with, getting them to do something that counters this in some way, right? So there's a blending of both theory and praxis here. So what am I trying to do in the classroom? It seems to me that what I'm trying to do often, which seems a bit counterintuitive, is to create a dangerous site. 
a dangerous site. But what does this mean, right? Well, it means creating sort of um, where there's a need for a critical dangerous space where vulnerability can be nurtured in white students, um, where they're faced with questions about race that mark their bodies as problem bodies. And so whites as problems, and as problem bodies. Okay, maybe I won't write all this down. I'll just, I'll just, I'll just say it. It's taking too much, too much time to turn around. Um, also, I think there should be significant moments of trauma in classrooms. Again, these terms sound so counterintuitive, making them dangerous and traumatic. Um, again, I like that the, the etymology is to wound here within the context of classrooms. Forms of trauma that unsettle various meta-narratives uh, that ground and underwrite white privilege in certain kinds of ways. Um, I think that there needs to be um, an effort to disarticulate various mythopoetic constructions about the white body and about non-white bodies uh, that, are, that sort of reinforce uh, their naturalized place of dominance in the world and positionality in the world. Um, I think we need a form of bildung or paideia that encourages this, this kind of, um, that cultivates this kind of uh, vulnerability in white students, where it's spaces where they can be m wounded, where they can undergo moments of trauma. Narrative disorientation, cognitive disorientation, and indeed embodied disorientation in terms of their whiteness. I'll give you an example of this. This often comes up when, for example, I'll say to my, my, my grad students, you know, when I go to APA conferences, it's kind of disorienting, right? It's like, you know, I don't know my place, right? There's so many whites, right? And I don't see anyone who looks like me. So it's rather alienating. And they will often say, I've, I've never experienced that. I mean, what, what, what's going on with you, right? But there's something about the fact that they have never experienced that which says something about their own normative status, right? Um, the fact that, and, and I'm really, and it, and it really becomes a, a fundamentally embodied phenomenon. So I'm interested in how is it that, what does it mean for me as a black body to reach out for Kant's critique of pure reason and to hold it? Right? What, is it what does that mean? What does that look like for me to do that? What does it look like to see white students in the philosophy lounge studying philosophy and just sitting around talking? Right? It looks normal. Right? But when I pick up the critique of pure reason, or when you hear someone who's talking about Kant, let's say with, a, with um, an accent, let's say a Spanish accent, right? it's kind of peculiar, right? something, something doesn't seem to be right. right? So I'm interested in the way in which my body gets disoriented, the way in which, for those who know about Merleau-Ponty, the way in which the world does not call to my body. In fact, the way in which the philosophical community as a site of a community of intelligibility, as a disciplinary matrix, doesn't speak to my identity as a black person. In fact, in that space, that space doesn't call to me to complete it. It says no to me. It says I can't. So what is it about me picking up the critique of pure reason when it's a text that Kant probably thought that I couldn't read, right? What is my relationship with that text? I think that's a fundamental question to ask. In fact, what is my, what is my body relationship to those APA conferences? And what is my relationship to that text? How do I pick it up? How does it speak to me? Or how does it not speak to me, right? So I'm really, when I say disorientation, I really mean disorientation, right? And again, what does it mean for white bodies to go to these conferences and, feel, and to feel at home? What's the problem with that? Right? And what are you carrying when you do that? Is it a site of racism? 
Can you be called a racist? Okay. Good question. Um, so within a larger framework, we need to create, I think, pedagogical spaces that will encourage, and I have to put this word up because so I'm beginning now to think more about this, that create crises. And this is often what I'm trying to create in my students, particularly white students, since Duquesne, you know, predominantly white university. Crisis, right. Because generally you want to cover over crisis, right. Want to, want to treat it, quite frankly, right, in the language of discourse of psychology, when there's a crisis, you want to really get that under control, right? I'm thinking we don't want to do that, right, within the context of philosophy, vis-a-vis -vis whiteness. So I want students to face their finitude, their relative emptiness, right? Again, that, that comes as a threat, I assume, to many white people, that I'm suggesting there's a kind of emptiness there, right? And all the lies that they've been told, right, uh, and raised to believe. So I also want them to tarry in this space. And this is something that's going to come up later in the talk. To tarry in this space. Within a space in which one ought to, as it were, be reborn. These <laughs> care quotes around reborn. Which is always a painful process, right? Yet it's about realizing that this rebirth is always a penultimate process. Right? It's always penultimate. So given that our white students have lived with a multitude of lies about their natural superior, uh, su uh, supremacy or in their normative status, their entitlement uh, for such a long time, they will also need, it seems to me, a space for grieving. Right? We don't create those spaces for students. Right? First, we don't think there's a problem. Right? But it seems to me if we're going to create crisis, then we need a space for grieving in classrooms. Right? Um, so here it is. Though here is where I think white people have come to embrace the importance of, uh, sorry, so it is here that white people who have come to embrace, I think, the importance of crisis, maybe some of my students, um, and the value of another word, I, this expression, I read it like, uh, losing one's way. So this, this notion of crisis and losing one's way is something that I'm trying to develop and think about. Right? They will need, it seems to me, specifically to benefit from something like a container to use the language of music therapy, um, a container within which or whereby they're able to express crisis and uncertainty as they strive to struggle with transformation and grieve the process of loss, right? Plenitude is kind of in philosophy, right? I want loss to be there, right? So here's, here's three pedagogical experiences I thought might be interesting that, that speaks to problems of race and whiteness. So this is when I was a grad student. I had taken a course in African American literature. And we had been reading, you know, Frederick Douglass, and specifically Frederick Douglass at the time, one of, his, one of his autobiographies. And so I was thinking to myself, I sort of raised the question, I said, look, guys, I'm pissed off with Covey, right, the slave breaker, right? Pissed off with the context within which Douglass is alive, right? His, his black experience, his air lateness, his lived experience is traumatic to me. It's, it's, it's deeply problematic, right? And I said, well, what about the white students here? What do you guys think about it? Well... One white student said, I'll, I think I'll have to get back to you on that one, George. Um, um, there was much silence. Right? One of the students said, well, I haven't really thought about that. Right? So I saw myself then, well, I kind of see myself now, retrospectively, as kind of creating a classroom that was dangerous. Right? Because the classroom up until that point, it seems to me, was safe. Because whites did not name their identities. They didn't name their positionalities. In fact, they were able to look at those texts that we were reading as disconnected to them, right? 
But what was it about being a black body in that space such that I identify with Douglas and they couldn't identify with Covey? Right? My question is, what's going on there? Why is that? I'll leave, I'll leave that open. Right? Why is that? So it was a safe classroom for them, but for me it was dangerous. Right? So I mean, so, I, so I'm, I'm thinking about creating pedagogical spaces within which safety functions to obfuscate right, the sites of, sites of racism. So this is a case where the classroom had not been made dangerous. It was safe for white people, safe for them not to see the connection between themselves and past forms of whiteness and white supremacy and how the past is always present. Right? So and also they were free to see African American literature as being something over there, something exotic, something different. When in fact I saw it as an indictment on whiteness right, in its contemporary manifestations. My Race Matters course, right? Here's a space uh, that was opened, right? And of course, you know, how do you how do you make this happen, right? It's not magical. How do you make this vulnerability happen? I mean, you throwing these words around, but how do you do it? How do you speak Parisia? And how do you make students vulnerable, particularly white students who are going to be so damn resistant, right? How do you make that site dangerous, right? Uh, and, and somehow show them that they're complicit. How, how, do, you, how do you do that? Right? Well, once I did this right, in a classroom, this is kind of what happened. White students began to open up in interesting kinds of ways. Right? There was a case where one white student said to the class, and you could see him sort of trembling. Right? You could see this sense of vulnerability. You could see his reluctance. And he said, you know, there was these black guys who, was, you know, who were teasing me because right? he was, he's, he's gay. Right? And they were calling him a faggot, and he's gay, and so on and so forth, right? And he shared with us that he said in his head, yeah, I might be gay, but I ain't black. Now that was threatening, quite frankly. So had, we, had I not created the framework for that, one, he would not have said it, right? Two, the other students in the class, maybe two of whom were black, including myself, right, may have thought, oh my god. So here's a case where he's saying, okay, I'm gay, but I ain't that. Thank God. Right? Might be gay, but I ain't black. I ain't a nigger. Right? And that's a good thing. So there's a sense of being opened right, that I really like. And using this word, the sense of being not, not sutured. It's <laughs> a beautiful term not sutured, right? Because we want, that's our sort of paradigm of healing. We close it up, we sew it up, right? But what if healing is the very opposite, right? What if it's this profound sense of angst, this profound sense that Descartes has, that none of my students seem to be worried about, you know, when, about his second meditation when he's talking about losing his footing and his grounding, right? You know, he's like in a whirlpool, right? No one really gets excited about that. And when Socrates drinks him walk, nobody really cries, right? But apparently I've created conditions where students actually cry in my classroom. Now that's just crazy, right? Because you're not supposed to cry in a philosophy classroom. And I was accused once, whose name, I'm not going to mention this particular professor's name, but she teaches out at University of Memphis. And she said that I like to create conditions under which white students cry in my classrooms. I get something out of that. We can talk about that later. <laughs> um, but anyway, so this non-sutured thing, right? So this one black student uh, in, in the class, um, so that was, that was my first one, and then there was this one black student in the class um, who, uh, who, who was crying because, uh, in, in essence, um, 
she uh, felt that the, the whites in the, 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 the classroom were denying contemporary forms of racism. They were denying her, her experiences. Again, that's showing the, the vulnerability here, right? Um, then there was a, the experience of a white female student who shared with us, again, under these conditions that were very wonderfully created. She said, you know, and again, you could see the, the trepidation, right? She said, one day I was walking down the street with my boyfriend, my white boyfriend. There was a black girl walking in front of us. And my boyfriend goes, now why don't you have an ass like that? She says to her boyfriend, well, at least I've got real hair. But again, right, this is a moment, like, where the hell does that come from? You know, as much as I've heard, it's like, but of course I didn't do that, right? I didn't go, I just went, wow, that's powerful. And, and then this is, this is like, this silence in the room and the students taking it in, right? Nobody fighting, right? It's dangerous, no one's fighting, no meaning by that, right? But of course, for me, I would have said, well, why didn't you say, why didn't you have a dick like the black guy? But that, she didn't say that, which is good. I'm glad she didn't. But, but, notice, but notice what happened here, right? She was complicit with her boyfriend, right, and a certain kind of sexualized, racialized patriarchy. At the same time, complicit with whiteness in terms of certain kind of aesthetics of whiteness, right? But we would have, we would have, the point here, I think, that I'm making is that, one, obviously, there are, these are, and these are not exceptions, by the way. It's not exceptional experiences, because I have a lot to give. Well, a few, well, not a lot, but a few more to give later tonight. Uh, well, I'm calling it tonight, but later on uh, this evening. Of actual, you know, these actual disclosures. Um, but, and yet, there was a sense of, you could see the trepidation, but yet there was a sense of, um, I don't want to call it relief, but she was able to, to express it, right? Probably never before. And within the context of that critical space that we created, she had the tools in with which to, one, name it, because obviously it was in her head. So in some sense, to even begin to name it, you had to give her tools with which to see it as a problem, right? So I'm thinking there's a lot of white people who have a lot of that stuff going on <laughs> that maybe haven't even looked at it yet, but sort of taken it as normative, right? Or just a benign experience that happened, right? So in another version of the Race Matters course, um, um, there was one black girl who said, we're reading Bell Hooks. You guys are familiar with Bell Hooks, right? And we're, t we're talking about where Bell Hooks sees whiteness as a site of, of terror, right? Which is kind of interesting, right? If you're white, you don't often look at yourself in the mirror and say, oh my God, I'm a terror. Um, but it's interesting that black people find you to be a site of terror. And of course, uh, Bell Hooks says that um, whites will deny that of black people, which he sees as racist, right? Which denies and erases, erases their critical subjectivity. And the fact that we can ethnographically look at whiteness and know something about it. It goes back as far as, as Du Bois and double consciousness. Right? Um, so here's a case where she was saying to us that, you know, I was at the school, predominantly white, and they called me the black girl. And it was just a horrible feeling to be called the black girl, right? This, this anonymity, existential anonymity that I was feeling. And then immediately after she said this, a white girl raised her hand in the back and said, oh, and she was really, really eager to, to say, so I said, okay, go, go. And she says, I know exactly what she's talking about. I was at this school where it was a lot of blacks, and they called me the white girl. And I was just pissed off. So I kind of said, welcome to the club, right, at first. But here's the problem with that, and we talked about it. Right? We talked about it. So here's a case where she didn't listen to the black females' experiences, but completely shifted the conversation to her stuff, right? 
the conversation to her white experiences. Thus, I would argue, valorizing her white experience, right? And also, she, she and these are interrelated, she also attempted to create, I think, an equivalence. I think it's just false, a false equivalence, right? She also attempted to conflate the historical experiences around naming practices, right? Okay, fine, you were called the white girl, right? I was called the black girl, right? But there was a time in which, as black people, you were called a name, and you objected, well, then you might find yourself in a position of strange fruit, right? Quite frankly. You guys get that reference, strange fruit. And so, and lastly, I think she placed the black girl's experiences under erasure. Right? It came about her. So I had, my job was then to shift the conversation back. But at the same time, to give the students a sense of what had happened because they missed it, they didn't see it. For them, many of them said, yeah. You know, the white students were shaking their head, yeah. She was called the, the white girl. That's horrible, right? Okay. And then there's the other stuff that comes up in class. Oh, good. I'm moving through pretty quickly. There's other stuff that comes up in class um, uh, where there are predominantly white students. For example, uh, why don't we have a white student union? Um, why don't we have a white history month? Uh, I don't see race, I just see people. Uh, I'm all for colorblind society, right? Why do we make these racial distinctions in the first place? Talking about whiteness the way that you do is a form of racist generalization. Of course race is real. Why do you think that blacks are all good at basketball? I've never lynched a black person. We didn't own slaves. Look, I'm just an individual. I don't see myself as white. Just call me Jane, damn it. Um, why don't we just stop talking about race? Um, you continue to talk about race, that's why it continues to exist. My dad told me that you want me to feel guilty about my whiteness. He warned me about you. When I think about whites with guns, it seems unnatural to me, but blacks with guns seems natural. Why can't we whites use the N-word? In fact, yes, if we whites can't use the N-word, then it's a form of discrimination. That's what he said to me last semester. I'm afraid of all men, regardless of race. I feel picked on as a white person in this class. Well, look, come on, blacks have all the privileges. Think about affirmative action. My father worked his ass off to get where he got. This has nothing to do with white privilege. When I was in high school, some black students had cars. How can it be said that I'm privileged? I didn't have a car. Um, if racism is systemic, then why should I try not being a racist? This, was, this one appeared in a paper that a student turned in. I think that white men are discriminated against because black men have really big penises. And then one of my favorite, which was told to me by a student, a student was buying a, buying a book for my course, and the white student said to me, hey, you're taking Dr. Yancey's courses? Yeah, yeah, sure. You know Dr. Yancey hates white people, don't you? He hates them. And of course, my response is, of course, some of my best friends are white. <laughs> <laughs> but, 
<laughs> okay, that's it, guys. I think that I think that wraps it up. <laughs> I mean, is that is that okay? I mean, we can kind of. I thought I wouldn't take too long, right? Since I'm going to give this hour talk later tonight, uh, and it's going to be every bit of an hour. So if you show up, but it will be it'll be good, I think, and different from probably anything you've ever heard before. Do you want to just fill your questions? Oh yeah, sure, sure, yeah. Anybody? Good. Yeah, sure. Um, <coughs> forgive the personal anecdote, but it makes sense to the question. Uh, a friend of mine that I used to work with was an African-American man, and we were working one night, and he told me that he went into the uh, pet store down the street to buy turtle food. And the pet store is owned by the bookshop on the other end of the street that I regularly frequent and know the owner very well. Mm. And when he went in there to buy turtle food, they asked him for identification. And yeah, it was his face was pressing. Was just, and when they, when he started to walk out, and the owner came out and said, "No, no, no, we'll sell it to you." I'm sorry. Then the owner came out. There was somebody else. The owner came out. Oh no, we'll sell it to you. After asking for the ID. After asking. Right. Then he did he show the ID? No, he said, "I'm leaving." Oh, I'm leaving. Okay, okay. So, I'm talking about vulnerability. I'm being vulnerable, and I have to admit that when he told me that, I mean, I was obviously flabbergasted. But I realized that. <coughs> You know, even in my neighborhood, that there were different, there were different worlds that people lived in, mm -hmm. and people who talked amongst each other all the time. But it also, I'm embarrassed to admit, occurred to me that I, I could sympathize with him, but I couldn't empathize with him, mm -hmm. because even if I had gone to a foreign country and experienced being uh, an outsider, when it was in my own world and my own comfort zone, it was something I couldn't, I couldn't that. that length of understanding of really being able to put myself there because it's something in that environment that I haven't experienced. Yeah, sure. So when you're working to create this sort of a dangerous site for your white students or a space of vulnerability, do you strive to uh, induce in them a feeling of sympathy from where they stand or a feeling of empathy? The latter being, I would imagine, much harder to do. How are you, how are you distinguishing the terms? Well, another student, when I was, did a master's at the new school and he was a student, I think he dropped out for reasons that, I think because he felt alone. He was a very tortured young man. But he said, uh, the problem with white people is that they feel a lot of guilt, but they don't feel any shame. Oh, I see. Okay. And so the empathy would be even shame, I think, but the, the, okay. the sympathy would Good. be guilt. Okay, if I don't, if I don't answer it, let, come back, because my head's going to explode. Okay. So you got a lot of stuff here. Okay. Uh, one, let me just remind you that even in cases where you're white and you happen to be in a predominantly black space, right, uh, your whiteness is still there, right? It's not, it's not as if you can carry that whiteness and all says, oh my God, all these black people, now I know what it's like to feel like a minority. Not the case, right? I'll give, give you a quick example. Uh, there was one white guy who told a story about being in Africa and, of course, now he sees himself as surrounded by black people, right? Now I finally know what it feels like. And the little children were saying to him, Jesus, Jesus, damn, is that powerful? Do you get the point? I mean, literally, they were saying Jesus. That for them was Jesus, this white guy. Think about that power, right? <laughs> the guy was, was carrying, right? And of, co of course, now we got this new data out of, uh, out of Nigeria that out of all the African countries, they're using these face skin, these skin bleachers, bleaching creams, right? That are doing all kinds of things to their skin, right? And they interviewed this one guy who said, I hate being black. Why did God make me black? Right? I hate it. Right? 
Well, quite frankly, I'm interested in white people saying, I hate to be white, right? I always tell my, my white students, go home, look at yourself naked in the mirror. Really, and maybe I'll suggest that you guys do this too. And say, what's so fucking special about this white body? My sense is that what will fall between you and asking that question is a norm. That's what ought to happen anyway, right? Because there's nothing special about being white, quite frankly, right? despite what history has told us and continues to tell us, right? So that was that little, little modifier, right? Um, also, this point, right, it doesn't surprise me that, that this whole ID thing happened, right? I mean, the black body is marked in this way, right? And then, of course, the, the white guy comes out, I assume he's a white guy, and tries to save the day at the end, right? It's funny, let me just give me, let me give you an interesting case, right? Um, you know, one white privilege that often is talked about is, the, is this privilege of being able to walk into a store without being followed, right? And, of course, I know about that privilege, right? I've walked in many stores getting toothpaste, and all of a sudden, the security guard is interested in buying toothpaste as well, right? The moment that I come in. So I say, okay, I'm going to go somewhere else and check out some socks. Well, lo and behold, by pure accident, I guess our interest just happened to correlate. He's interested in socks as well. Right? So the sense in which your body is under surveillance, right? Think about uh, Bentham's Panopticon, right? I, I wrote a piece for the, I'm all over the place right now, but I wrote a piece for the New York Times. I don't know if you guys saw it, if you read The Stone. Um, but one white guy, I'm saying white guy, could have been a white woman, uh, wrote to me and personally to me. So they got over like 600 comments, but the ones that came to me were even more interesting just to my email. And this person said, um, oh, you know what, I'll read that tonight. So, uh, sorry, you'll have to come to hear that one. <laughs> sorry. Is there anybody who's not going to be here? Okay. The, the, sh the short version was, of it was basically, there's a place in hell for people like you who lead people astray. Right? Say hello to Ted Kennedy and Hitler when you get there. <laughs> for me. Now, well, I don't know why Ted Kennedy and Hitler's there, but together. But, um, wh why am I saying this? Okay. So, so... One of, my, one of my undergrads said something absolutely brilliant one day. He said, well, look, Dr. Yancey, if I walk into the store, and this is still related to what you're saying, it's, it's just about this black body being marked in a certain kind of way. If I walk into the store and you walk into the store at the same time, and you're a follower, that's not my problem. It's the security guard's problem. And which, on the face of it, sounds really quite striking. It's like, yeah. I think, I think you got a point there, right? And many of the students were, of course, again, agreeing. Yeah, that's it. You know, you find you got him, right? You got Dr. Yancey, which is not the way you do philosophy, right? It's not about getting us, right? It's not about I can, I, can, I can dispute that argument, right? Let me lay out my premises or something like this, right? Um, well, it's not simply that, right? And so I pointed out to him, well, wait, but there is something that you get that I don't get. You get a kind of ethical standing a priori. Right? I don't get that, but you get it. Right? So really, there's a relationship between... <clears throat> now, I'm going to actually make a, an interesting leap here that I hadn't thought about. I would argue that there's perhaps a relationship between you and the guy in the store, even though you're the black guy's friend. Right? I'm going out way out on a limb here, right? but this is creating dangerous spaces. Right? So I said, look, not... I mean, and this is why I've thought about it now. So I said to him, look, you have this, this ethical... Uh, uh, this kind of uh, assumed ethical integrity given to you, but I'm, I don't get it. And you get to shop. In other words, you get to move through the world as if that world is yours. I don't. So in some sense, you're benefiting from the system and indeed perpetuating the norms that govern these kinds of bodies differentially. Right? But now I'm thinking, look, there's a relationship between uh, so, so black body, white body, and white body that follows me, right? but doesn't follow him. 
But what's interesting about this is that that white body and that white body are acting complicitly. Right? This body is given the authority to follow me because it knows epistemically what black bodies do. And stress knows, right? Putting a lot of emphasis, they steal shit, right? This body, however, it's innocent, despite the fact that statistically whites shoplift more than blacks. But there's a way in which they're complicit at a distance. They're part of a, a system that gives them a certain kind of epistemic authority, right? And gives them a kind of dialectic, <coughs> smooth dialectic movement in the world, right? So these two are kind of, I would argue, are complicit with the system, and as such, not very different. So I'm thinking about, thinking about your, your friend who's black, but what is your whiteness, how does your whiteness co-mingle, bleed into the whiteness of that individual who stopped him? Right? Although you, like the student, would probably say, look, I, I didn't follow you. If I had followed you, sure. But this is a conception of autonomy and racism that is just bad. Right? I mean, if you're, gonna, uh, if you're gonna have a concept of autonomy and agency within a system that is systemic, right? That's contingent upon a series of, 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 of numerous actions, right? Numerous technologies, numerous normative structures that are operating at once, then this idea has to go. What does auto mean? And what's that come from? Nomos, right? Which means law. A law. So, a law unto oneself, but I like this term, right? Heteronymous, which is kind of other, right? A law unto the other. So, in many ways, these two bodies are a law unto the other. What is that other? What's this larger structure that I was kind of painting, right? So, that's kind of what I wanted to say to you. And then back to your question about empathy and sympathy. I like that distinction, but uh, if you read the work of um, Janine Jones, for an example, she argues that uh, whites can't have empathy for blacks. Um, because they can't meet the conditions under which they might have that empathy. And this may come out tonight. Again, I may repeat some of this, but let me give you an example, something that, an experiment that was done recently. You guys have heard of the, the neuronal mirroring? Uh, those who haven't, you know, they have these, these monkeys, they find that when a monkey is looking at another monkey from a distance, um, neurologically, it imitates what the other monkey is doing physically. So if the monkey is swinging from a tree or just playing with a ball, when they put these MRI machines and they, they see the parts in the brain, it's as if they are playing with the ball as well, right? So the assumption is that there's a level of empathy. I can see myself there doing that. Well, they hooked these MRI machines to white guys who then looked at black guys, as opposed to white guys. When they looked at the blacks, guess what happened? It was as if they were looking at a blank wall. No neuronal activity, which is intriguing. Right? I mean, we need to be careful in terms of how much we extrapolate from that, but I think really intriguing. Right? So this question about how do you empathize with a person's experiences that are complete, I don't want to say they're incommensurable, I'm not going to go that far, but profoundly different, right? Incommensurable would, might throw me into all kinds of epistemological, especially in a company of philosophers, right? I'm not going to say incommensurable, but... So I'm, I, I critique the notion of empathy here, right? Um, what would it look like? Uh, my question would be, what experiences can you draw on 
I mean, and I'm not saying that's impossible, right? I think you really would, you would have to do something like that. But the hubris, speaking of hubris, it, it's the idea that you can match them. That you can say immediately with quickness, without tarrying longer with my pain and my suffering, right? So I'm troubled by that. And I like this distinction, the feeling guilt and not the shame. Because we can make a fetish of guilt, but we can also make a fetish of shame. Which then obfuscates the work that needs to be done. I feel, I feel a lot of shame for what? I feel so shameful. It's like being mortified and you beat yourself because of it. Uh, you know, I'm part of this white structure, damn it. And, you know, oh shit, you know, it hurts. Okay, are you done? Right? But you, you, you see what I'm suggesting? So, I mean, I, I like this feeling guilt versus shame. I like that and I see how it's almost as if the shame part is, a, is progressive from the mere guilt, but I want to also say that even that could function as a side of obfuscation. I hope that he had a follow-up, but go ahead. Oh, yeah, I don't know which one. Either one. I don't know. Just jump in. No, take it. Well, you guys are generous. Uh, I mean, thank you. Uh, All right. So I, I really appreciate the uh, vocabulary. Uh, oh, yeah, good. Here. Um, um, I, you know, I like that it kind of matches up with what I've been trying to do in my classrooms. Mm. I, I've been using different vocabulary. I think it's a little bit more precise, and so I really appreciate mm. that. Um, but I'm coming from a slightly different um, environment. So I teach at LaSalle, which is up in North Philly. And we, I think it's safe to say we have a more diverse student population than Villanova, um, economically, racially. Um, and so my, my, my class is I'm teaching intro to, to religion. Um, we, try to, we try to touch on a lot of different things, including gender and race. Um, and one of the things that comes up when you know, so I use Malcolm X for the section on Islam in America. Um, and it, I can create a dangerous site for the white students. And um, uh, I also try to be really upfront with about, you know, Good 30 to 40 percent of our students are, are students of color, um, mostly black. Um, and I try to be upfront, like you guys need to interrupt me because I I don't want to be your voice. So interrupt me if you want to talk. But I, I know a lot of times what ends up happening is um, uh, some of my black students will say the white student stuff, if that makes sense. Um, and I've always like like about racism being over and like, we just stop talking about race. And partly that would come from you know, I guess I'm going to get intersectional, um, but you know. Probably it comes from different class backgrounds of those students. Okay. From slightly more middle class backgrounds. Um, and I never know what to do. With, with regard to what? With regard to that. Well, the white people stuff? No, when, when, when a black student sort of says the white people stuff. Oh, I see. Um, because I'm the white professor and I'm scared of uh, fucking up. I'm just wondering if since this is a workshop if, uh, in, a, in a slightly more diverse situation how do you create a dangerous site that is mm. still safe enough for your students of color um, where the white professor isn't becoming just another white professor mm. but, uh, I'm just wondering if you thought through some of those issues Wow. That's a bad question. Oh, no, no, no. No question's bad. That's a good, that's a good question. I, okay, again, I, I'll qualify the same thing. Help me to come back to it, right? Um, yeah, I, I, that, that's interesting. I, um, um, 
when I was in high school, I, um, I took my first philosophy class at LaSalle. Um, and because I was born and raised in North Philly. Um, so things come, some things come out of North Philly, interesting kinds of ways. <laughs> we, can talk about that. we can talk about that later. Um, I, I forget that you guys are so close to Philly, right? That's right. That's right. Um, but anyway, I, I remember one, one philosopher who I admired a great deal, but I'm, I'm not going to mention his name because of out of respect, but I remember once he said to me, um, so you're thinking about studying African-American philosophy? Yeah. He said, well, you know, you have to be careful that you're not pegged as the guy who does African-American philosophy. <laughs> and afterward, I've written about it, and I, I did not name him in the, in the book, and afterward I, I thought, well, now I think, say, how are you to tell me not to be pegged, right? When I took your course, you didn't say anything about any black philosophers, right? And, you know, you're pegged to American philosophy without the blacks, right? William James and John Dewey and Peirce, right? It's, but you're equally pegged. I mean, no, well, I wouldn't say equally pegged, but you're pegged if you're going to use that argument, which I think is problematic, right? Then you have to talk about your own being pegness, right? Kind of interesting. Um, that was a little, little, little story. Um, one, of course, I think you have to be careful uh, that you don't, and I think, I think you're aware of that, that you don't give permission to your black students. Um, um, I, I can't remember what, what you said, but you, you, you guys need to... Um, and I wrote the word here, and it doesn't look like anything. It looks unintelligible to me. Um, yeah, right. Interrupt, thank you. That's the word, interrupt. Um, you, of course, you have to be careful that you're not giving them that, right, as a white male, right, giving them that to interrupt. But I, I, would, I, would, I would assume that you don't have the same kinds of experiences that I have teaching that, right? Um, because, I mean, I, I, my body's, my corporeal presence is mediated by this blackness, and it's mediated by all, by all the stuff that they're putting onto me at so many levels, right? One of which is that I'm deeply invested in this stuff, <laughs> right? I'm out to get them at some level, which is just not true. Um, but white people stuff, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I think that that's a hard question, and I hope we can open that, that question up. Um, I think, oh, oh, I'm sorry, I was getting ready, oh, I was getting ready to say something, but you, go ahead, right quick, I was getting ready to answer, but go ahead. Can I ask you a question? Sure. Because this is what this is for. The, the black students or the students of color, specifically black ones, that they have, they should feel free to interrupt you in front of the entire class? Uh, so the way I do my teaching is it's, it's a little bit, uh, anyone can interrupt when, um, so in part, it, when I started teaching in LaSalle, it was a very different environment for me. I was coming from a British model, um, which was very privileged, and then I was teaching at Paul, which was um, uh, also very privileged and still pretty English, so, um, whereas, uh, you know, students knew that they were supposed to sh shut up in a lecture. Uh, my students at LaSalle would oftentimes talk during my lectures, but, and I didn't want to, I, I would stop them sometimes, but sometimes they were talking about what I was saying in ways that were helpful. Like they would be like, what, what the hell does he mean by that? And so I didn't want to stop that because it meant that it, I could slow down and we could work on the topic together. Um, so my, it's not like a formal lecture. My class is yeah. more open. Um, so yeah, they, they, they have permission to interrupt me um, or you know, chime in when I say stuff. Do you specifically, explicitly make that known to the black students in front of the whole class? Yes. Is, is, that, is that fair enough? I think I think that's what you think that's a problem. I'm just wondering if, if 
in trying to tell them that they should feel comfortable more up, that you're singling them out from the very beginning to say, you know, it, it could be that I'm doing that, uh, but what I what I do is I make it about um, me being a white. Here, here, let, 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 let's go. No, so let me let me say something about that. I think that's good. I, that's what I was gonna. I was gonna on my side comment. Uh, to, I think I think you should say uh, when they say this white the white people stuff. I, I think you should encourage them. You should say, tell us about that, right? Be, because as white, I mean, look, it, it, as men, we can't talk about women's issues, and we can. But we'll fool ourselves if we think we can do it alone, right? Because I've had men say this, like, oh, we can talk about rape. Well, come on, how can we really talk about that? Right? At no point do we ever say to ourselves, at this very moment, you know, I could be raped. You know, even if you're raped in prison, it's not the same, right? So I think that you should encourage them at that moment, but encourage them in, the, in this form by saying, okay, I'm not the authority to obviously give you the permission to interrupt me at any time, but the way you should do that is to put your own identity on the line by saying that, as a white male, I'm like many of the white students in here, which is something I generally do. So and not only are you creating a space of vulnerability more generally, but you're showing them that you're vulnerable, that you're open to be wounded by what they have to say as well. At the same time, of course, you're saying, in essence, look, you guys occupy a different kind of epistemic position. Yeah, you're, you're probably the authorities, quite frankly, in this classroom. I can give you theory, but I can't give you the experiences. Right? So while you're not giving them permission to speak, I think by positioning yourself within that white space where, uh, with, with regard to the white students, I think that alliance is great, right? Because and then in many ways you're kind of, there's kind of an alliance with the, the black students as well as knowers of this thing called whiteness. And you're not exempt because you're the professor. Yeah. Right? So I think there's this kind of putting oneself out there as being, not suturing that, right, as the authority. Um, but I have classes where black students do things like they're quiet. The other white students will, will get pissed off because of that. They'll say, well, well why is, you know, we don't hear a lot from over there. And they'll say that. Like, well, first of all, what do you mean over there? Right? <laughs> what do you mean over there? You, you mean the black students, the two that are over there? But yeah, then we say, well, why are they silent? Well, let's find out why they're silent. They're silent because of the white people's stuff. So I mean, sometimes what I find in my classes, particularly in a critical whiteness studies course, I'm preaching to the choir, right? It's like, well, come on, Dr. Yancey, what are you doing for us? What are you doing for us? Well, what eventually happens, of course, they realize, my God, I didn't realize that there were so many dimensions and sedimentations of whiteness, right? That's what happens, right? So it's not that I'm preaching to the choir, right? Sure, we share certain experiences, right? But there are ways in which you can think about whiteness and the ways in which you can theorize it that they have not become aware of. But I think if, you're, if, you, allow, if, you, let, if you open up to the students that, that there's going to be this di these differential responses, right? And I think that's important. And I, and I think it's important to, to, to get white students not to be so... Um, they are going to be, but... One, that they don't deny the experiences of the students of color, but also that they're not often so amazed by it, right? Which shows, I, I know it's hard you know, not to be amazed when you're white, right, of certain kinds of experiences. I mean, Jane Lazar, who's the mother of black children, her, her black son was being uh, harassed by a white police officer, and he was just driving in his car with a friend, and they were just driving while black. And uh, when, the, when he came home to tell his mother, she was thinking, oh my God, you know, when did this happen? And, and how many times did it happen? And, and his mom said, I mean, and her son said, Mom, look, 
This happens to me all the time. And that's her kid, right? But so it's, it kind of shows the way in which those blinkers function for her, right? So I, I think that... I think that you have to open up the discussion to make it visible that there are going to be these dif differential experiences, right? And to realize that to create that dangerous space, for that space to be dangerous not just for white students, but for black students, um, I think you have to encourage them, despite the fact that they may know a lot of those experiences, to want to disclose a lot of those experiences, to talk about them. Um, because there are aspects, I mean, look, look, look here, here's the point that I want to make. That's a larger point. We don't know each other. Right? Uh, the beauty of the term neighbor, it means to dwell near. We don't dwell near, right? Physically, we don't, don't dwell near. I mean, the, the stats have it that, that whites, less than 10% of whites have black friends, right? They, they start out by saying, I have a lot of friends. But when you ask them things like, well, what, what's your friend's last name? You say, well, I'm not sure exactly, but we do spend a lot of time together. And so what do you do? Well, we sometimes have lunch, but they're qualitative, right? Do you ever take them home? No, right? So eventually at the end, he's like one friend, if that, right? So I think we don't dwell near, so when you have this context, this pedagogical space in which, in which their bodies are forced to dwell near, yeah. right, um, those differential experiences are going to come out, right? Uh, but I want someone else to, to, to speak to this, or just a different question altogether. Um, I don't know who to ask, but uh, anybody, I don't, you guys just no, go ahead. No, 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 you were pointing to her. Okay, go ahead, you're on. Because I want to, I still want to answer that, I'm not sure if that's full enough, but go ahead. But come on, if you have something okay, new. So I, I, I'm, I'm going to ask a question from the perspective of a student. Yeah, and you are a student. Yeah. Okay. So and so I think something that I look for, and I'm deeply invested in the subject as well. So I think something that I look for is a certain level of courage from the professor. And I think while you're talking about, you're talking about some really strong. Terms of vulnerability, complicity, yeah. and I, and and I, as I was listening to you answer, I'm sorry, his his question. Yeah. Um. I thought the word courage came to mind mm. because I think if the lecturer, the professor, is not in a place where they've already experienced this before they enter class, mm. so they're not experiencing vulnerability about their whiteness. So the white professor, yeah. in this instance, is not just getting vulnerable for the first time about their whiteness in a classroom setting, I think that's, that means you're unprepared. I would say that professor's not prepared. So I think it's mm. important for, for white professors to experience this vulnerability, deal with their own privilege as a professor, even on a topic of race matters or a topic of whiteness. Yeah. So even if you are that professor who kind of gets it, yeah. there's, still, there's still some deeper levels yeah, of sure. privilege and complicity that sure. needs to be examined yeah. before sure. the classroom entrance. And I think that takes a, a lot of courage, and I think it also should be exposed to the students, as you were saying. So saying, look, I've also dealt with this, and I've had to figure out where, I, where I'm situated as being your professor, but also being a white body, yeah. and so forth. So I, I guess I'm saying two things. The issue of courage is really important. Yeah, sure, sure. And also, because I think for a black student, it's very clear whether or not that professor is prepared to deal with these subject matters. 
so so black students, at least I speak for myself. Yeah, sure, sure. Because of individual. Yeah, sure. It, it's, it becomes very clear whether this professor has gone through this issue of vulnerability or if they're coming from a very strictly yeah. theoretical perspective. So, so, so courage is something that's built into the Parisian notion, right? So obviously courage is important, but part of... But part of what you're saying, I think I absolutely agree with you. I mean, I mean obviously, I mean, look, I, I know of people who publish in this area, and I've seen their racism. Mm -hmm. I, I know philosoph white philosophers who write about critical whiteness studies, mm -hmm. and they fail miserably, not in terms of theory, mm -hmm. in terms of action, mm -hmm. right? And I can't, I'm not going to call that out, because I'm respectful, right? Uh, of, but, I mean, there might be a time where we need to call them out, right? Mm -hmm. But I, I, think, I think at one level, though, What you're suggesting it might might be difficult, right? Because if to be white is not about arrival, right. if it's about process, right? Then you want to jump in and throw something in. Then, then you're going to have a white professor who ain't prepared. In fact, I even wonder. I even wonder what the hell does it mean to be prepared? Be prepared. Well, I as, as, as a white. Right. As a white, so going back to your question, what does it mean for you to teach these courses about whiteness and well, about race and so on that come in your course? But what does it mean to be for you to be prepared? If it's a process, then my argument is, and, and then this requires a much more extended discussion that we, we can't do here. But there is no exit for you guys. Mm -hmm. There is no exit, quite frankly. So give up that first of well, all. That, so, so what does that mean by prepared? Well, well, but you see, but see, I'm, I'm suggesting that to, to make it, to, to, to make it, to, to suggest that there's a state of preparation that one can reach, is is a false start, right? Because then it's like, well, you're not prepared. Well, guess what? And I think this will be you. Guess what? I probably will never be prepared, given the state of things, right? given the way in which I'm constantly, which is a beautiful word that I like using. You guys have heard of the term that racism is insidious. Can, Do you know what? Can someone oh, jump shoot. in? Jump. I think Jump someone in. just did. Oh, uh, you did. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I'm, I'm in the position where on Tuesday afternoon at... Uh, Let me, can I just ask a question to yes. create trouble, just to put it out there? Yep. Did you feel erased? Did I? No, you. Did I feel that? Yeah, erased. Erased? Mm -hmm. The white man just jumped in. No, no, well, no, because did, did I know did? him. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Right, he's one that you know, right? <laughs> <It's good. laughs> okay, he's a white friend. Well, that's good. Well, that exempts him from all that. Right. So, so my credentials are already I'm, I'm throwing that out there. <laughs> and I, I assume that that was sarcastic, right? <laughs> but the, the, the reality is uh, uh, Professor Mark Bookman and I, on Tuesday afternoon, will be entering precisely this race issue discussion with a group of first year, for the most part, first year students, yeah. in which the fewest number of white students who have ever been in my classroom appear in my classroom. Yeah. Our classroom is a classroom in which we will, that is Mark and I, uh, will be engaging and looking for responses to these issues via by way of a book link point. A what? A book link point. Okay. And a philosophy course. Okay. That talks about 1969 history. And how does that how does that 
because it's this white woman in Arkansas who steps out of her, 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 you know, pushes open her screen door, steps on the porch, goes down the steps, gets in her car, and joins the group of African American young men who were taking the march uh, against fear from Memphis to Little Rock. Okay. Well, and okay. this is now a tribute to. So will this, will this be a kind of opening for the, the class for you? <clears throat> And oh, yeah. Is yeah, that is that be, is that important here or yeah. over there? But that that period. that particular pedagogical move is that important for you to show students that there are whites who are anti-racists? No. Oh, okay. No. I'm just curious. No. What's, what, what 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 does that do then? What is that? Why is that important to open up the, the course? Okay. Uh, what's important is I want the world to be more safe for my children. Oh, okay. And I want to be a part of that process in academics. Okay. And though I, I look around and I recognize quite a number of people, I, I also observe there's a lot of young people here. Yeah. Well, let me, let me say something. The, yeah. the, the, the world is just really interesting as it becomes younger. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, I hear an optimism in your voice, um, oh, yeah. which is which is important. I don't share it, though. Yeah. It's, a, it's a very opposite. It's okay. Yeah. Um, I, I, in that in that piece, I, I kind of referenced uh, speaking of Malcolm X that you know people see the world as you know it's this dream, but I still see a nightmare, quite frankly. Yeah. Um, and things ain't getting any better, as far as I'm concerned. So you have to ask. It depends on who you ask that question to. Um, um, and I think this notion of making the world safer, but I think we have to make it dangerous before we make it safer, right? And, and, and this is what I mean by going yeah, right done. back to your point, which is good, yeah. and, and in relation to the courage, but the dangerous part I think is important. I think you should lay it out for your students. Say, look, there ain't no place called arrival. I'm a work in progress, quite frankly. All of us are, right? And I think if you're honest with your black students in that way, and even your white students, for crying out loud, right? Because they're looking at you probably as someone who's made it, right? But I don't know what that means for white people to make it. Really, I, I really don't. Know, know what it means. I mean, I have a sense of what it looks like, but to say made it, I don't know. So I think that your black students will be much more respectful of you in particular when, as I said before, you position yourself within the context of that whiteness. You see that you are too this kind of heteronymous figure that in many ways is the result of all of these practices, right? And that you've only begun. To, and, and also you're empowering them, although not in, in some, you know, giving it to them, but you're empowering them to see you critically. Right? Because otherwise you're communicating to them falsely by pretending to be the one who has arrived, as if you've got your shit together. And also, right. it's really important to make sure that you know that self-flagellation does not mean <laughs> I have arrived. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. So I don't know what, by the way, it's, it's almost as if you're suggesting that there's a kind of propedeutic that needs to be done. I mean, I don't, I don't know where, I mean, it's, there's, there's no propedeutic that can be done before you get to that classroom. Unless we do stuff like this, right? But we'd have to do this. It, it well, can't just be me here doing it today. Right? I mean, it, I mean white, white people uh, would have to get together, right, and seriously talk about this. But again, you can't do it alone because I think, this is what I argue, that you guys need this right here. And I, I like this concept of the gift. I mean, you can throw it anywhere you want to, right? So theologically rich, right? Um, but it's the concept of the gift that we have to give you. It lets you see stuff that you can't see. In fact, it allows you to say things like, I thought I knew me, damn it, and I don't. 
Right? And that's what I mean by crisis, right? I rarely see white people in crisis about this. Like, shit, I thought I knew me. I, I, I was sophisticated. I knew, damn it. I, I've got some black friends. I, I read all kinds of really, I know Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. And damn it, I've, I've lost my sense of orientation. But what does that look like, right? <coughs> who, who does that? Who goes into a state of crisis if you happen to be white? I mean, and what does it look like? I want to see more of it, right? But you can't do it alone, that propedeutic notion, right? And, you, and my argument is you can't do it without the voices of black people who have the gift of double consciousness. So my argument is that white people have to develop the gift of double consciousness to see themselves through the eyes of people of color. Right? Because you can't see your stuff for so many reasons. My younger son... Epistemology of ignorance and these other issues. So. My younger son has told me that, yes, I can do that. He's a professor. And he says, but I can't. You can do it because you're white, hmm. my son says. It's an important distinction. And that then becomes one form in which gifting occurs. Yeah, sure, sure. Sure, absolutely. The, oh, absolutely. The, I, like, I like gifting. I like but, the way. But, but yeah, the sure. difference is you're here in a pedagogy, critical pedagogy workshop area. And I know the, the, the people with whom I've worked and talked very closely for a long, long time, and I'm not going to look at her, but I know <laughs> uh, they blanch because the self-same son has also says, yeah, Dad, you can say that to me, but don't say it out loud in public. But I'm going to say it out loud in public. On this campus, with this culture, I am the baddest black white dude that is around. <laughs> so that's, uh, as it were, complicity in a different kind of way. I'm just trying to make this I'm assuming that's a problem, guys. Yeah. If he's the baddest. Black, like, oh, it's a real problem. On what does that say about the other whites? I mean, I don't know him personally. Yeah. Man, but. They give an award every year. And he's your man, right? <laughs> When another black body is in the room, do you feel that whether you like it or not, and whether the student likes it or not, that you then now share the burden of creating the space of um, a dangerous site and a space of crisis with that student? Which? The black student? The yeah, only black student? In a hypothetical situation, if you're teaching a, a class and let's say you have a, a, like one or two students of color. So what, I'm te what am I teaching? Like critical uh, whiteness studies? Or something. Course, sir, okay. Really oh, fun, anything. But, okay. Yeah just in terms of creating the sort of dangerous space, because I found that here at Villanova, it always sort of became a part of my responsibility, as well as the professors, to create this dangerous site. So then, you know, I, I heard before about the black students that aren't speaking and why aren't you speaking, it sort of seems like there's this presumed notion that because I am black in the room and okay. we are talking about race, that I have to create this dangerous site with you. And do you feel that that is dangerous in a negative way? Okay. Yeah, good, 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 good. One, one, one black female called me out once and I was talking about this notion of gift because she suggested that, well, wait a minute, that puts a hell of a lot of inordinate pressure on us, right? Because not only, as she put it, do I have to be the object of white people's hatred, but I have to also be their liberators? Right. That's a hell of a place to be, right? And it is, right? 
it is, right? And my, my answer to her, my response to her was, My, my response to her is, well, well, who else is going to do it, right? That was, that was part of it, right? So it's, a, it's, a, it, it's, it's kind of an inheritance. Unless, as some blacks have said to me, say to white people, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, and sorry guys, I really don't have time for this. See you later. And, and, and then I walk out and I leave and you guys don't see me again. Which would be really dramatic, wouldn't it? <laughs> but anyway, it would, be really, it would be really awkward, right? But it would be profound, I think. Damn, I, okay, I missed that. I blew that one. But, but the, the, the notion of the gift, it, it has, it, it, it's almost as if the gift has a weight. I mean, I, you see, I'm, trying to, I'm, I'm really trying to talk through this, guys. Because I, I recognize that being the object of the scorn and all the racism, at the same time, you have to fake it. You have to listen. You have to take it in. All the mistakes that are going to be made in one semester. Right? And you're going to become, you are tired, right? But you keep up the front, right? Because it's important for me, it's important for you. So I think the gift comes, it has a weight. I think it, it just comes with a weight. But at the same time, I think you're right. I think, I think that what we should say, should say to white students in that case, that you guys, look, it's not about us telling you what to do. It's about you guys working on your own shit, right? So, stop looking at me, right? As, as, you know, as, as Baldwin and Richard Wright have written, I think quite accurately, that white people with respect to race are kind of like children. Right? You take that how you, how you will, right? They argue it. And, and Baldwin, of course, is more optimistic about this because he says, we have to teach them, right? We have to do it because they don't know any better. But again, that's a hell of a position to be in. How do you do that? Um, how do you carry that, that weight and do it with integrity, right? Um, so I, th I think you're right. I think what we need to do is shift it in the presence of that classroom. When it's happening, we have to shift it. Say, let me hear what you have to say. It's, it's, this, is, this is your problem, right? I might be able to give you my experiences, but don't reduce... And of course, academics, and this, this is a critique of, of much of feminist philosophy, white feminists, who will take black women's experiences and theorize them for them, right? And so, so black women, they, they give experience, but they don't give theory, which is a, an insult, quite frankly, right? So I think there's a way in which, and I'm saying a lot here, right? But I think there's a way in which in those moments we have to shift it. Even as, paradoxically, we're the bearers of the gift. I don't know if someone wants to take me on on this. If you do, I don't mind because this is new. This is new, and I'm interested in theorizing and thinking about it. You, yeah. you, you've had your hand up for a long time. Yeah, I know, I'm, sorry. I'm trying to trying to restrain myself. Um, no, I teach a course on genocide and uh, also a humanities course, and so I come bump up against this a lot. That, on one sense, all my students want to distance themselves from genocide. Mm. That that only happens to other people. Yeah, but sure, in sure. another sense, we mm. spend a lot of time talking about colonial history, mm. talking about Africa. So, mm. in a sense, that that idea of this is a gift that no one asked for in mm. a way, because you're born white. Uh, that's a gift that no one that you never asked for. Hmm, that's interesting. I, I I don't generally think about whiteness as a gift. But as a curse. It is. But but I no no no. I, it's, but it's a gift that you. No, I, let me let me let me let me let me take that back. It's. Let me take it back. Okay. Uh, tell me how it's a gift. Well, it's a gift because it's provided privilege and power. To oh oh, I see that. That that that's yeah. right. Good. It's giving Excellent. me. 
privilege of power yeah. that I didn't Good. ask for. Good. And so, but to, that's the toughest thing is to get undergrads to see yeah. themselves connected to a larger narrative. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and once they Excellent. do, they tend to either revel in the shame or Excellent. reject it completely. Excellent. And Good. to put it in the form of a narrative or a story, they, they have a tough time seeing what to do with it, and they get, yeah. they get frustrated. What do I do with all this burden? Of Good. Da, da, da. And Good. to see themselves as a part of a, a larger story and guilt can overwhelm them. So yes. I found yes. it very useful to say that you aren't, you're not responsible for what your ancestors did, but you are responsible for what you do yeah, sure. with that responsibility. Sure. So it's not about just reveling or, or wallowing in the guilt and shame and self-flagellation go, oh, now I know what it's like to be black because I'm yeah. being whipped, right? I mean, like, that, that idea, it, but it's moving forward. And, and it, it, it can be empowering because you have this gift. Being white means you have power, and being white male means you have double gift. Yes, yeah, sure. Right? Yeah. And all and can, I can pile up all sorts of gifts on top of me because I'm straight, because I'm educated, and because I, you know, blah, blah, blah. I, I'm all Asian. But, but that, that just means I have power, and what do I do with that power is, is what defines me, not what my, not what my people did, in yeah, Haiti, sure. whether it's in Africa or on this continent or anything like that. And I, that's, that's a different way of framing it, but it's acknowledging all that. And you have to get to that point. You have to know the story. You have to know the story. That's yeah, where sure. history is very, very useful. Yeah, sure. Even more than philosophy, I would say. Because yeah, I, do, sure. I do it in a historical way, so Good. you have to connect the dots. No, absolutely. I mean, and, so and, and sometimes I throw around terms like, okay, uh, like homo historicus, the, the self is homo historicus, homo narrans, these are interesting concepts, homo significans, it kind of helps them to get a sense of it. But what I find that helps them really to get a sense of, of, of the historicity of that is one, I, I, I want to emphasize that the past is present with, with a little more uh, urgency and uh, uh, robustness, but I, I hear, I hear what you're saying. Agree. Yeah, I got you, that's good. And, um, but one, one way which I kind of do it is to say, you know, ask the men in the, in the, in the room, and I'll ask the men in here, uh, who in here are, are racist, or not racist, sorry, who in here are, are sexists? And I usually put my hand up. I don't know if anybody else wants to join me, if they happen to be. De facto, sure, as opposed to what? De jure? <laughs> aren't, they, aren't they linked in some way? They're split for you, or they used to be. Okay. Um, but what, one way, one exercise right, is to kind of talk about my own identity in the present and how I am part of a larger narrative of male supremacy. Right? And how my constitution as such, and, you know, what that means for women in the classroom. So in many ways, I kind of I try to historicize my own identity in order to give them a sense. One, I'm not off the proverbial hook, right? I'm kind of this weird oppressor, oppressed identity. Um, and that kind of sometimes helps them to come to terms with the historical part of it. But part of it, too, is, is challenging this notion of autonomy. I think the liberalist concept of the self as autonomous in this sense and uh, atomic, right, in that sense, they need a deeper sense of what it means to be and I'll say a little bit about this in my talk later, to be embedded in history and to be also a site of what I call um, white racist psychic opacity. So if you guys are familiar with Butler's work, I take the term opacity and rework it in ways that are kind of interesting. I won't say a lot about it, but I'll say something about it. But opacity too, so it's not just about history, it's about opacity, which, which takes the form of um, Tim Wise, for an example, who, who is, you guys have heard of Tim Wise? This is a popular white guy who talks a lot about uh, white privilege and so on. You know, he talks about getting on an airplane, uh, uh, and and he's you know committed to fighting against racism. He gets on the airplane, he walks past the cockpit, and he says to himself, "Can these guys fly this plane?" Right? And he goes, "Oh, oh shit, where did that come from?" Right? 
And I talk about that in terms of white opacity. In fact, to say that racism is insidious, it comes from the word insidia. Does anybody know what that means? Insidious. Oh. Yeah. Body, woven in. Body, woven in, yeah. good. It means to ambush, which is quite powerful, right? So whites need to encourage spaces of ambush. Right? But you can't have those ambushing experiences without this. Right? And those ambush experiences ought to be valorized. Right? So Tim Wise, at that moment, or take, or, or let me give you another example. Take, take uh, do you guys know Michael Kramer? Mm -hmm. uh, Michael Kramer. Michael Richards, a.k.a. Kramer. You remember him from Seinfeld? Let me give you this wonderful example of this example. Um, so he's at the Laugh Factory doing his comedic thing, and then you have a question, right? So I'll be quick with it. I think I thought you had a question. Yeah, I'll tell the story. Okay, quickly. So he's at the Laugh Factory. Some blacks are saying something. He says, pretty much verbatim, oh, 50 years ago, we'd have you upside down with a fucking fork up your ass. You can talk now. You can talk now, motherfucker. Kick his ass out. He's a nigger. Look, a nigger. A nigger. A nigger. Look, a nigger. A nigger. I mean, this is literally what he says, right? You can, you can Google it and find it, right? Later, he comes on, well, over the air, Seinfeld's on Dave Letterman, he's allowed to speak, and Kramer apologizes to Jesse Jackson. I don't know what the hell that meant, but <laughs> he, thought, he thought that, you know, was cathartic for him, right? Somehow it, it makes us all cathartic, which is just absolute BS, right? But this is what he says. He says, the insane thing about this is that I'm not a racist. Make, you have to make sense of that, right? But then he says something, speaking, who said I've given him a certain kind of vocabulary? You, you mentioned that, right? Yeah. So, but he didn't have the vocabulary with which to speak to this very brilliant thing he says next. He said, the insane thing is that I'm not a racist, but it comes through, it fires out of me. That, it seems to me, points to this notion of ambush, right? If anything, what he should have said was, my God, thank you, right, for this wonderful moment of ambush. Right? This moment where I thought I knew me, and lo and behold, I didn't. So there's that sense of losing oneself that I put up here somewhere that I really like. Losing one's way. Right? What does it mean to lose one's way as a white person in a white world? Right? I think that needs to be spelled out. Right? And then you have a question. Yeah. It'll I'm be sorry. Need to be the last. I'll try to be brief. Uh, thank you very much, Dr. Yancey, for your talk. Thank you. Uh, so this summer, I had the experience of working with a group of incoming Villanova undergraduate students and talk about race critically with them um, for the first time for myself as someone, of a, someone in a teaching position. And I have a feeling it was the first time a lot of them were able to talk about this. As all well. white? All white students? No, it, it was a pretty good mix, okay. actually. Um, so. They, they watched a documentary about this, this class in Berkeley who they all meet once a week and talk to each other about very prevalent themes, mm. lots of different perspectives. Um, I thought it was great. Mm. At the end, we, we broke out into discussion and I was shocked by how many of the black students were saying, well, I still think that racism isn't an issue. The black students? The black students. I expected this as, you know, from some, from at some level, but even coming to the defense of some kind of white perspective like, uh, oh, this person is just being antagonistic towards white people, it's not their fault, or like, I don't experience this in my life, I don't see racism as relevant, or even one student who says, you know, this isn't the first time that I've talked about this, it won't be the last time, and I don't really see the point in talking about race over and over again. Oh, I see. Change. Oh, I see. So now, I find myself in an interesting, problematic position as someone who wants to teach this to them and in the future is, 
how do I then say, as as a as a white woman, say no, you're wrong. Yeah, sure. Racism exists. You have a overdetermined race marked body. Sure. And this, <laughs> and this is what your experience is every day. Yeah. So you're wrong about thinking that you know the world excellent. that you're living in. Good. How, do, how do I say Good. that? Good. Let me, let me say something about that. that that's, an excellent, that's an excellent point. Uh, how many blacks were in that class? Uh, I can't say. Can't there were 36 students and... My, my question would be whether all of them said that. No. So um, there were a few of the black. Was it maybe two or three? It was... I'm just curious about that number. The majority of students didn't think that racism was a problem. All students or the black all, ones? All the students. Well, that's fair enough. But with respect to the blacks, I'm just kind of trying to narrow it down. How many said with that? With respect Voices to the black them. students, there was one black female student who who admitted that racism existed, but she didn't think that. But, but can you? And I'm, I'm sorry to press you on this, but can you remember how many black students held to the position that racism no longer matters? Uh, I had, I spoke with a group of five or six of them, and I think three of them were black students. All three of them. Really? That's that's good. Um, I mean, that that's interesting. A couple a couple things. Um, I wish I were there. I mean, I'd love to have <laughs> witnessed that. But I have. That's interesting about it. And and I would, of course, for me, I would wonder. I mean, what, tell me about that, right? What have your experiences been like? That, that, that's what I would ask, right? Um, how have you avoided this issue, right? And are you holding on to a view that's accurate? I mean, that becomes the question, right? Because. Clearly, it's a false view, but yet we want them to speak about their experiences, right? So I would think, I would argue, that we'd have to um, ask them to share their experiences and perhaps give them the tools with which to reassess those experiences. Because my sense is that just as you are white and you can't avoid racism, if you are black, you can't avoid racism, even if you don't know it as racism. Particularly if it's not the kind that says, hey nigger, what are you doing around here? Right? I'm talking about those quotidian micro acts of social aggression that you just don't have the wherewithal to recognize as such. And there are black people who don't see it. Right? Um, one, I wonder whether or not they said that, and this is a speculation, in order not to stand out as the person who will cause trouble here, right? Depending on, so perhaps they felt the space not to be safe for them. So, so maybe they felt the space was not safe enough. Right? Maybe they were feeling threatened by what the white students would say. Believe it or not, stats have shown that when racist things happen to black people, they really don't want to mention it. So this idea that we play the race card, they don't want to mention it because they know that it will be denied anyway. Right? which is really intriguing. So I wonder whether or not they were intentionally obfuscating that. That's just my speculation. It's an interesting point. Um, also, I wonder, um, oh, what was the other point? So that, that was one point. And then, um, yeah. The, the thing is, I find this with female students too, when we're talking about sexism. There's a lot of females who deny that sexism exists. Right? And I mean every form of it. It's like, we're beyond that. Right? It's like, what are you talking about? And so all of a sudden, I'm this black male who's telling a white female that when we look at you, we're checking your ass out. Okay? Come to terms with that. Right? 
When you're walking down the street, you go, oh my God, look at that ass. Ooh, what would I like to do with that? And it's a fat ass, too. It's a P-H-A-T-S, right? Um, or there are professors who talk about Plato, but I'm really checking out your tits, right? Now that's part of Parisia too, right? And sometimes my students can't quite configure me, right? Because you're not supposed to have a PhD, one, and wear this damn cap all the time. But two, you can't say tits at a Catholic institute. Come on, I just said it, right? I mean, what do you mean? They're on their way. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> but, I mean, so, so what, I'm, what I'm suggesting is I'm a black male, and I have to remind females, even black, well, across the race divide, right, that sexism exists, and it's real, but they don't see it, right? So, in some sense, I'm in, in kind of a similar position, right? a similar position, right? So, I mean, assuming that they're not doing the same thing, in the case of these, these, black, these black students, so I'd be interested whether those black students feel safe. And I wonder whether or not some of my female students feel safe about coming out and talking. I'll often ask them when we're talking about it, well, give me an experience where you've been sexually objectified. And you can see them, that sometimes their bodies won't freeze. You can see it, right? Uh, and other times, you can, you can see a slight grin that they'll wipe away very quickly, right? Because it's a, it's a dangerous question to ask women, particularly if it's in a room filled with men, right? So I wonder about that, too, within the case of the, the black students. But I wouldn't find it odd that you play that in the way that you just suggested. I, I, why, don't, why, can't you, why can't you speak to them about your own racism? I mean, that, that, that's, a, that's, a, that's a wonderful moment. It's a moment for you to talk about your racism. And hopefully you're able to do that, right, the best way that you can, right, because it's not going to all be clear. So if you talk about your racism with respect to their bodies, if you have experiences where you've been walking down the street and you saw, let's say, a black guy said, I don't, in your classroom, I don't know what you guys are talking about, but quite frankly, I think it's over. I, I, people judge me by the content of my character. King's dream has happened already. It's gone and passed, right? So he said, well, quite frankly, I saw a group of black guys walking the other day and I, I, I held onto my purse for dear life. I don't know if you've done this, right? But here's an experience where then you, as a white woman, are shifting their perspective on themselves. Like, really? You've done that to people who look like me? I mean, I mean that's what I'm suggesting. Right? So, so perhaps it's a, it's a wonderful opening, non-suturing right, moment for you to begin to talk about what you know about racism as a white woman, and then kind of showing them, in essence, something weird here about what you guys are talking about when I know about my own racism vis-a-vis -vis people who look like you. Right? So I don't think you should feel uncomfortable saying what you just said. Why not? Why not? Uh, oh, you said the last one, but... Yeah, it was just to be finished at 3.30. So. Um, just to bring it back, you can answer Lindsay's question. Whose question? Um, Lindsay? Where's Lindsay? Uh, Lindsay said I answered it. <laughs> so you're the white guy who tells the black woman that the black guy didn't answer the black woman's question. <laughs> Something like that. Something like that, okay. Um, Maybe I was actually thought I answered it too. I mean, well, maybe after the second. I mean, the, the, only, the only white, the only black girl in the classroom. I think there's a hell of a lot of pressure about that. And I think I said we should reverse the gaze. We should spread that stuff around. Say, look, I'm not just the one, right? And particularly being a black woman, right? You've got this this non-additive kind of intersectional stuff going on, right? Uh, so I think we need to point that out, and she needs to point out to both black white men as well as white women in those in those pedagogical spaces. I thought I gave her. What answer would you have given her? 
I don't know. My question is, well, how would you make, how would you spread that out without explicitly, you're, either way, you're still putting that incredible pressure on, because. On who? On either, on either the professor and the student, or both, because one of those people, or both of them, has to make it explicit that the, Set, set up her scenario. Well, I, I was saying okay. that the, the presence of white bodies puts that pressure onto black bodies. Yes. That it is not the professor that puts it onto me. It's my presence automatically yes. creates a situation where now to other students, I have to share that yes. burden with you yes, of creating a dangerous space. So it really is the whiteness in the room yes. that puts it onto the black bodies. Yes. And it's that naivete. It's, well, it's part of the structural problems of the epistemology of ignorance, right? That's there, and no bad faith, if you like, depending on your, your, your position, right? That's there, right? But in, in, and I sort of thought, well, it's a kind of paradoxical burden, while at the same time I said to spread, to, to spread that stuff around. But it's, it's the, it, look, Sarah Ahmed says something wonderful. She says, when you walk in the room, it's not so much the fact that you walk in the room that people are looking at you as the different body. It's the presence of what is already sedimented. Right? That's the problem. The problem is who's in the space to begin with. So I suggest you're suggesting something like that. It's the white bodies in that space that are creating the problems for me. Yeah, I think I as marked as the one who needs to speak on your behalf, to speak for you, to speak about you. Like I carry this burden. I'm the mother of the earth, for crying out loud. I have to help you. I have to nurture you and breastfeed you through all of this stuff. Make you feel comfortable, quite frankly. Right? But notice where that's coming from. That's not coming from anything specifically intrinsic about being black or being a black woman. It has to do with that space that's been pre-carved as a white space. Right? That, that gives the pressure. So I'm suggesting name that space. Name what you're feeling, quite frankly. Be outrageous. Right? Be indignant about what's being asked of me in this, under these circumstances as a way of marking that white space. Right? And demarking me, quite frankly. Marking and demarking. Right? I think I misunderstood the original. Okay. How was that answer? That was, uh, I got it. Okay. <laughs> I'm glad. All right. Thank you.